You're listening to Grow, Cook, Inspire. I'm Helen Cross, and this is a podcast which aims to encourage more of us to grow our own and cook from scratch, whether you're five or 85. Each week, I share things to do in the garden and in the kitchen with children to help inspire more of us to become more green-fingered and look at where our food comes from. Hello and welcome to this week's show. It is officially spring. We have managed to crawl our way out of hibernation through what has been the longest winter on record. But we've made it and we can hopefully look forward to brighter days ahead. On today's episode, I am very, very excited to be able to share with you my interview with a gardener, TV broadcaster and writer Alice Fowler as she talks about her brand new book, Grow, Forage and Make, which is also her very first children's book. Plus, I'll be sharing my top tips for things to do in the garden over the next week or so. If you haven't already got seedlings coming out of your ears or they're slowly taking over every windowsill in your house. I'll also be encouraging you to go down to the woods for a real taste of spring as the foraging season officially kicks off. But first, it's a year since we went into lockdown and it has been a year of heartache and devastation. No one has been untouched by events of the last 12 months. Now, one of the main reasons for starting the podcast and bringing alive my original blog was not just because I love talking and interviewing brilliant people who have got great stories to tell, but also I really wanted to encourage more of us to garden and grow and get into the kitchen because for me personally and as a family, the benefits to our physical and mental well-being over the last 12 months have been huge. And I'm not alone in picking up a trial to help get through 2020. Over 3 million people started gardening in 2020 for the very first time. This number is quite staggering and many of these people were younger people and families and children. The task now, however, is to keep this number growing. Now, if you are a newbie or you want to get more children in your school growing, then I have found out about a really great company who are based in Glasgow and they are called Goody Foody Gardens. Now, they provide you with everything you need to grow your own veg and it's perfect for beginners and perfect for schools. The team will come along and they'll bring a raised bed for you, which they will install and you'll get compost and a choice of your seeds. Plus, you'll also get canes for support and netting. And there are lots of guides and there's also help online. And um, the growing team are available on WhatsApp as well. Now, they're always on hand to keep you motivated. And I just think it's a great idea to bring you everything you need as a starter pack to get growing. So if you're new to gardening and you want to give it a bash, this is a great idea. Now, their email address is www.goodyfoodygardens.co.uk or you can find them over at Instagram at goodyfoodygardens. Definitely one to check out. Now, while we're talking all things vegetables, I hope lots of you have been getting off the sowing starting blocks indoors. This week, we've been planting out our first early potatoes into containers. They have been busy chitting away and they had lovely, healthy green shoots of growth. So we planted them in about 15 centimetres of compost and 
covered it with more in a huge big container. And once we begin to see the first shoots of green leaves, I'll keep adding more and more compost on top until we've got big luscious leaves and flowers round about June time. Now, our tomato seedlings are growing along nicely in their tin tomato cans. Uh, plus, we've got lots of nasturtiums and marigolds and sunflowers, which are growing at a great pace. Now, these are our companion plants, um, which are basically, hopefully, going to keep all our veggies nice and healthy. But we'll talk about this next month when we're also going to talk about pumpkins. So as well as planting out our potatoes, I've also been sowing courgette seeds, which I bought from Sarah Raven's collection online. Now, I've never had much luck with courgettes, but I am going to persevere again this year because I really do love eating courgettes. And also, the boys and I are sowing Brussels sprouts indoors this week. Now again I've never actually grown Brussels sprouts but the reason for doing this is because we want to grow our very own Christmas dinner in a big container. Now we've got a large old baby bath which we've cleaned up and drilled some holes in the bottom and the plan is to direct sow some parsnip seeds next month transplant a few of our beetroot plants and also plant a couple of later seed potatoes and hopefully we'll be enjoying the fruits of our labour come December the 25th. Now that's everything going on in the garden this week. Now it's time to share with you my interview with Alice about her beautiful new book, Grow, Forage and Make, which has been illustrated by Heidi Griffiths. Now it's absolutely beautiful and it includes over 30 easy to follow projects and foraging activities, as well as experiments, arts and craft ideas to do with children. Now, I hope you enjoy listening to our conversation from a few weeks back as much as I enjoyed recording it. I'm good. Thank you so much for taking time out to chat. I really appreciate it. So thank you. Not at all. It's a real pleasure to come on your podcast. Thank you. Is the sun shining where you are? Yes. Yeah, we've just been in the garden, actually. Yeah, no, I've spent the day with my youngest. It's been lovely. It's been really nice. Even had a few cups of tea outside. So spring is coming. I'm so excited. So excited. So I was... Sorry, you go... No, no, no. I've just been telling listeners that um, for those that don't know you, uh, you are a writer and a gardener and journalist. Um, you've got a weekly column on the in The Guardian. And I first came across you back sort of 2010 on your show, The Edible Garden, uh, which I may have watched a couple of times. But what I loved about that show was it was an urban garden, very similar to what I've got in Glasgow and uh, you basically became or you tried to become self-sufficient in the year uh, that you filmed it it was um, very resonant to what lots of people have tried to achieve this year as well yeah I, it's, I mean it feels like a long time ago long. That now. but but to its credit very little has changed in the garden so yeah. I still do exactly the same thing I still have you know, I have two different chickens, but I still have chicken and, you know, I still try and cram it full as as much food as I possibly can grow in the space. And I also do have an allotment, so I have a kind of second space. 
So did you have the allotment when you were filming that as well? I don't think I did. No, I don't think I did. I didn't think I'd got on the... I think I was just sitting on a waiting list. On a waiting list, yeah, like lots of people. No, you could broadcast that in 2021 and uh, I think lots of people would uh, really, really enjoy that because it's so very timely um, as well. Um, Do you want to give us a little bit of background about how you got into gardening first of all and a little bit about um your sort of upbringing as well um so my mum is an amazing gardener and very passionate always has I mean like I have no new tricks everything I do is just what my mum taught me so my mum had I had grew up in an amazing garden a very very big garden actually now when I look back on it I realize it's huge it's about five acres um, I had a walled garden and my mother was self-sufficient, but she always grew all the vegetables in amongst the flowers. So like I like I say, I have no neat tricks. I just stole my mother's. Um, and she also um, was a chicken farmer and we had orchards. So I sort of, you know, she was very influenced by the sort of late 60s, early 70s self-sufficient, self-sufficiency movement, I suppose. Um, yeah. We kind of grew up on those principles, you know, and some of them really worked and some of them didn't. So she was forever trying to kind of take us up one notch more of self-sufficiency. And we were always kind of rebelling as teenagers and saying, actually, we wanted to eat McDonald's. but um, <laughs> And a potato waffle. <laughs> yeah, really. Um, but uh, I am very grateful for it all now, of course. Yeah, isn't that funny? Because I've spoken to someone else and I grew up on a farm um, on the southwest coast of Scotland. It was a sheep farm. But my mum and dad have got a huge, huge vegetable garden. And I think I took it really for granted. And I left home at 17 to go off to uni. And I've only lived in cities since then. And it's only now that I think what I learned from them without really knowing, I think has shaped now what I do with my kids as well. Yeah, I often also think about if you grew up on homegrown vegetables, how your attitude to a vegetable is really different as well. Like, there was, yeah. you know, there was no waste. You were used to eating things that looked, you know, had quite a lot of bits that needed maybe to be cut out or, you know, weren't quite perfect. Like you sort of, I, I feel like it really influenced my cooking in that I my mother particularly didn't sort of stick to recipes because it was whatever the garden had available. And so I always kind of, you know, I'm endlessly subbing and changing things and recipes. And I find often when I cook with people who grew up with kind of much more a sort of supermarket dominated food and, and yeah. style cooking, you know, they're very they're stuck in this, like, well, the recipe says it needs three potatoes. And you're like, well, you've got one yeah. and a half. You're going to have to do something else in that, like, space. <laughs> So, um, yeah. Yeah, no, and I think actually lots of people could take that a, a lot from that. That is thrifty cooking. That is making use of what you've got. And I think that's a skill mm. that people have lost, to be honest, just because everything's so convenient. And if you run out of something, you can just nip to the supermarket and, and get it. Yes, and everything is published as well. You know, so it's yeah. sort of like inheriting recipes. I mean, people, of course, do inherit recipes, but like inherited recipes have always been quite loose about the idea of what goes into them. But once yeah. you have, once you like learn to cook off a published recipe, which is like 250 grams of this and 300 grams of that, then that sort of changes, I think, how you cook. 
No, I agree totally. I think that's, yeah, it's about not becoming quite so regimented mm -hmm. and allowing to make mistakes as well, because some of the best dishes you'll make are because you've had a bit of a, a cock-up, so to speak, <laughs> uh, as well. Well, certainly in my cooking, <laughs> there's always there's always mistakes. <laughs> um, so you, you studied at, um, with RHS and with uh, at Kew Gardens as well, which is one of my favourite places in the whole of London. I was lucky enough to live very close to Kew when I lived in London. Um, and then you went on to University College of London as well. What, what made you want to go and study more about sort of gardening and science? Um, well, I think actually I'd had a really, like, you know, I'd done a traditional apprenticeship. So at the end of five years, uh -huh. I was actually really eager to sit and look at books. Um, yeah. So it's that funny thing, I think, about going to university late. Like I was kind of ready ready to do it at that point which I wouldn't have been if you tried to make so what age were you um I was well I mean it wasn't late but I was 21 yeah you know oh, I, okay. I was older yeah. than you know <laughs> for my first time going to university it was kind of you know older than yeah the kids around there I mean you know it's funny how that feels significant then and now you look at anything that's not that's not an age no I know <laughs> I, I was 17 <laughs> I can't even get served in the pub so <laughs> So, yeah, I think that's what sort of drove me was trying to understand a bit more after such a practical kind of and fantastic education at Wisley and Kew and yeah. Botanic Gardens. I actually wanted to sort of put my head in books. Yeah. For a bit. So I went and did a year's master. It wasn't a it wasn't a long thing. I just got a master's and then and then I realized I was completely overqualified and nobody was ever going to employ me. <laughs> Well, it's, it's, um, you've had a, a sterling career, so um, it's done no harm. Um, so your your most recent book that we're going to talk about today, Grow, Forage, Make, which comes next month, is a bit different from the previous books that you've written. Um, can you tell us a bit more about that and what made you decide to, to want to write this book, which is beautifully illustrated? Um, it's really, really beautiful. Oh, isn't it? It's the illustrations are just the most joyous thing about it. So to, the point about this book is it's aimed at kids. Um, and I've always wanted to write a kid's book. Always, always, always. From the minute I started writing, I was like, oh, one day I want to do a book for children. Um, and Bloomsbury approached me and said that they wanted a kind of much more traditional gardening book yeah. aimed at kids. And I was like, well, it's good. But like my experience of children and gardens is that like, Gardening is way too long and too slow for for many little people, um, and therefore you you need it to be in kind of more bite sized manageable bits. So the idea was kind of there is growing in there, but there's also making and foraging and things which are, have a slightly shorter time scale and therefore are a bit more easy, an easier sell perhaps to then you have to wait eighteen months to see that one come to fruition. Um, Point. Yeah, so like, and you know, because I often, my allotment seems to always have other people's kids all over. I mean, I don't have children, but I, I am one of those strange magnets to small people. They always come and see me. So I spend a lot of time gardening with them. And what I noticed was, <clears throat> excuse me, was, you know, the obvious stuff, which is they have a really good attention span, but it's not going to stay there forever. So I, also, I'm just a huge, like, I don't think I've ever really grown up. Like, I loved writing this book so, so much. It's the book that has brought me more joy than any other book, just because I love messing around. Like, I am still a six-year-old kid in the garden making mud pies. 
this was like this was a really um wonderful kind of chance to sort of just all the little things that I find a lot of fun I mean I genuinely have done all of this book off my own back just just because I'm curious sort of wanting to see how plants grow wanting to see what a stomata looks like wanting to you know which is the breathing the breathing pore underneath the leaf mm-hmm. so there's lots of funny little science experiments which just actually do teach you what these marvelous things called plants are doing so I think also as a little kid I mean my parents were really into this kind of um sort of experimental sort of child's kind of education thing it's very much kind of how my mum was always like we'll pull it apart and see what happens or like what happens if you do this to it and stuff um and I think that once you sort of start that off with kids their curiosity is just so brilliant and so endless and if you give them a few tools to kind of actually start to understand how the world around them is put together then then they've got that for life so that was a kind of if that's not a slightly overly ambitious aim (laughs) was to give more people the sort of the sense that you can go into the garden and experiment a lot as well as growing and I think also with children and gardens it it should be more of a playground you're not looking for a sort of gold star Chelsea winning garden with kids because it's let's face it it's not going to be like that when you've got three boys tramping over everything anyway so it should be a playground and it's the same with the kitchen I always think the two go hand in hand and they should both be playgrounds to allow children to experiment and have fun and ultimately learn as well is is certainly what I what I feel when I'm cooking and and gardening with the kids a hundred percent I mean and you know like so often when people are like what should you you should grow with children grow radishes well you know name a child that really loves radishes I mean you know there are one or two who may like them but most of them you know eat one I think it's far too spicy so it's sort of move away from this like exactly that sort of um goal orientated kind of gardening where it's got to be productive or it's got to be beautiful and like see the garden as like you say an extraordinary playground full of amazing other players so that's the other thing is like the garden is home to so many things, whether it's beetles or worms or, you know, fungi in the soil. And it's kind of seeing that that whole holistically, that whole world in the back garden, I think, is so important and sort of tying it all together. And like I say, their kind of brilliant, endless curiosity makes it an easy task. Actually. Yeah, and they are very curious. Give a child a worm and uh, they'll they'll dissect it. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> which I think is actually really legitimate. Like, I think, you know, that's how, that is that is how you learn about stuff. I remember really clearly, I have this really early memory as a little kid sitting over an ant hole and, and my mum coming out, because this is when we used to live on a farm, and my mum coming out and going off to see whatever she was going to see, some sheep or something, and, um, and saying, what are you doing? And I said, oh, I'm cutting the ants in half. And then her coming back probably wasn't a long time, but in my child's mind, it was a really long time. She's like, you're still doing that? And 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 I was like, yeah. She's like, mm, you're going to be there for a really long time. Do you think, you know, just, do you think you want, do you think all these ants want to die? And like just kind of suddenly dawning on me what I was actually doing. Like I couldn't win this task. There was always going to be more ants to cut in half than I could kind of possibly um, possibly achieve. And I remember it really clearly as just a, a cause and effect thing. So I'm all for pulling things apart in the garden. 
garden isn't an extension of your house it's it's the extension of the natural world around you as well so it's part of nature so and we're there to sort of support it as well I think that's really important to sort of bear that in mind if you're fortunate enough obviously to have a garden as well um what do you think are the main benefits because I think a lot of what we've talked about um a lot of it has been lost not as many children are sort of engaged with the natural world perhaps with the exception of the last year because the pandemic's almost forced to sort of reconnect with nature what do you see as the sort of the key benefits um of getting more kids gardening and in, in, in nature i mean you know i think talk to anybody who has a passion for nature and when you ask them where it started it always started at childhood like there are very few people who come to it late of course you can come to it late and it's fantastic if you do but most people have this like early moment where they can kind of they can pinpoint this bit whether they were with a parent or a grandparent or you know in their local park where they suddenly you know fell in love with the world around them through nature um and so you know the more access any kid has the more you know the more opportunity is for that chance to fall in love um, and I think your point is really pertinent about the garden not being an extension for your house. So like what saddens me is when I see gardens, you know, made over and designed and 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 they become quite rigid spaces which can't adapt because like anybody with children knows at certain point you may want a lawn and then they stop playing football or want to do something else. And, you know, your garden will like adapt as they as they grow up and change and it may be all about mud pies and um, and you know buckets of water when they're small, but as they get older, they may have different needs in the garden. So um, I think you know it's an amazing space. Clearly, if you have access to it, and I want people not to be afraid to go and kind of experiment. I feel that as an adult, I mean, I feel like all the gardening that I teach as an adult is just go and have a go, just chuck peas in the ground. You'll be surprised. Nature is actually really kind. She'll help you along a lot. But, um, I, you know, this book has given me the opportunity to kind of do it to a younger audience and working with Heidi, who um, has done all the illustrations, you know, has just been a joy because she's really brought this book to, to life. I mean, I think it's, it's her work that makes this book so so kind of engaging really because her her illustrations are just you know they're just you just want to dive into them they're so full of lovely detail and uh, she just couldn't she couldn't stop looking at the illustrations she was mesmerized by them um so yeah you it's a great partnership you've got there so it's it's brilliant brilliant um how do you think this book sounds like it could be a book that would be really useful to go into schools um and i know more people are doing outdoor learning um how do we think we can get more of this into the the curriculum enough in a fun exciting way oh yeah wouldn't it be i mean just wouldn't it be really dreamy if you could be prime minister for a day because i would actually really redesign if i had a magic wand the one thing i would do is redesign primary schools so that they were like predominantly outdoor space <laughs> maybe a tiny indoor classroom because, you know, I, I remember when I was a student working at Wisley and I was in the RHS in London, you know, Vincent Square doing some work for some show that was putting on and was like in one of those 
tall buildings and you know around Vincent Square looking down onto this playground which was just entirely concrete and seeing all these kids come out to play in it and just thinking whatever we do inside here in the RHS doesn't really matter if if a standard playground is going to be concrete because you know where where's the life in that um and I do I you know um I get to peer into schools and get invited to them and the good ones are doing really amazing stuff even if it's on very limited budgets and limited resources whether it's just putting up you know a hedge rather than a fence all of these things make these make this play environment softer but um you know yeah if I could be prime minister for a day or if I could you know have a serious campaign it would be to make the playground soft and inviting and full of nature and have absolutely no concrete in it whatsoever I, I mean I think it's an astonishing material to decide to use around children if I'm honest well it's suffoc- it's suffocating it suffocates them and their ability to experiment and and to play um well also it says I mean this you know in the pandemic it's really interesting watching people there's a whole new audience who came to my, my allotments in a park and there was suddenly a whole new audience who came to the park who possibly really hadn't spent any time in the park before but you know this is the kind of one big communal space and over the summer like we have a big meadow in the middle of the park and for a number of years the friends of the parks have been trying to restore this into the proper kind of grassland flower meadow it should be and over the summer I, I would see kids you know ride their like bikes through the the tall um wildflowers and you know I'm got to that kind of slightly I've got to that middle-aged bit where I go and tell young people what I think nicely but I went over to them and said you know I see you having fun like and what it was a great conversation with these young men I was like but you know these plants if you keep riding over them they just won't survive and they were they were very cool about it and they were like oh I didn't realize and kind of moved off but walking away from it I realized of course they use the park like it's a a concrete playground like a concrete playground is hard and you can throw things at it and nothing changes so of course when you go into the kind of green environment that's you imagine it to be the same you imagine grass is just the same way as concrete that it kind of somehow will respond and not that like these things are kind of fragile and precious and, and need to be treated in a certain way and it had me thinking how how kind of um criminal it is really that we we feel that we can allow our children to grow up on concrete yeah no totally totally we have we're our school it's a wonderful school and it's right beside 82 hectares of parkland so we are like we're really really fortunate but the school itself is there's such huge amounts of concrete um a playground as well and it just the, the contrast between that and the park surrounding it it's like two completely different worlds um I just I, I would love to be in the brains of someone who designs these schools because it's the, the schools are all the same um there's definitely <laughs> well it's the kind of the really awful kind of it's the worst bit of modernism in architecture isn't it yeah, totally totally um, so obviously, would you say that your your own childhood then has sort of perhaps shaped this book as well? Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, like I say, I was always outside. Like my mum's whole idea of child kind of childcare was just to chuck me outside with a dog. <laughs> she trained the dog to come home. And, and you know, this is this is not a like made up story. She trained the trained the dog to come home for its meal in the afternoon, and she trained me to follow the dog. And then she just left me. Like I roamed all over the countryside. When I look back at it, it's a kind of it seems an extraordinary childhood, really. 
that nobody was paying any attention to where I was. But I survived, so that's good. Um, and uh, yeah, this book is 100% influenced by that small child and the big child right now. Because like I say, I still think it's really fun to go and make my pies. And to be honest, it's, yeah, it sounds like for adults as well who, who feel that they're still children, which I think that is most adults, to be honest, looking for a bit of escapism, definitely. Um, so obviously we're coming into sort of sewing season. Uh, I got a bit excited because I saw some sunshine and went a bit crazy on my way. <laughs> and my mum's like, it's far too early. What are you doing? Um, and my husband's a bit annoyed because the house is gradually turning into a, a greenhouse. But what are you most looking forward to trying that you've not tried uh, out in your garden and allotment this year in terms of fruits and vegetables? Um... I have to say there aren't many things I haven't tried at this point in the game. Uh, I'm just looking forward to getting back into it, to be honest. I sort of hunkered down like everybody else did over the winter and slightly didn't think about it too much. Uh, my biggest task ahead of me is that I've got to change the the film on my polytunnel. Okay. Polytunnel film has like got more holes in it. than I mean, it, <laughs> it's kind of lacy right now. Um, so I need to get that that's my next really big task and then um and then onwards this year actually for the first time ever which is a little bit surprising but it feels like the right thing to do I'm growing a lot of cut flowers I mean I always grow a lot of cut flowers but I'm growing more and part of that is just a real desire to have flowers in that I think maybe it's that thing of feeling like being trapped for a year and having anything that can change your interior and so I've so enjoyed picking flowers over the last year and um, I want to be able to give them away to people when I see them again so quite a lot of the not I mean not a huge amount but more than ever on the allotment I'm going to have rows of um, cut flowers which I'm looking forward to um, and I've got way too many potatoes I have this terrible terrible habit where like I have eyes way bigger than my plot yeah um, and I love potatoes so much. And I've like I've got so many potatoes chitting. It would literally take up my entire plot if I was to plant every single one of them. So every time I meet people in the street, I'm like, you don't you don't need any seed potatoes, do you? <laughs> kind of I feel like this pusher of seed potatoes on people at the moment. That sounds very much what is gonna happen to me because mine arrived today and uh, oh my god, I've got no space left. <laughs> I know. Well, also, if you want the good ones, you often have to buy them in one kilogram bags. And I'm like, I actually only need five tubers, but now I have twenty. So yeah, I've got way too many of those. Um, what else? What am I doing this year? That's like, I mean, I, I, these days I feel like I've got it down to a kind of tried and tested sort of regime for what I know works for us in the house and for the garden, and allows me to kind of run away in the middle of summer. So I don't don't like being too much of a slave to the veg garden so I grow so many perennial vegetables now for that reason that actually the kind of annual production is not as big as most people would assume it is because I can just leave the you know perennial kales and whatever you know the, yuck um, the yakons and the weird other things that I'm growing to do their thing and just come to harvest them which is the kind of gardening that I like these days but lazy gardening I know that's a bit of derogative but yeah I, I get I get the the drift of that yeah I mean I what I came to it not not only because I wanted to do less gardening 
I mean, I love gardening, but quite a lot of annual gardening is not necessarily good for the soil. You know, it's a lot of kind of um, it's a lot of taking from the soil and not giving back, really. Um, even if you make compost just because you're disturbing and stuff like that. But also because perennial vegetables are do a much better job of um, of surviving whatever climate change is throwing at us mm. because they have these like deep, deep roots and they have storage organs and they are there for the long run. If it's not a good summer, it's those things that always come through. And so increasingly, I've sort of added more and more of them to the to the garden just because, you know, uh, tomatoes are so dependent on us having a good summer but if it's a wet one you're going to get the lousiest crop ever but you know some really good perennial vegetables particularly the perennial kales and the you know nine star perennial broccoli um just you know these what are maybe slightly niche crops but they're reliable and ochres and stuff like that they mean a lot to me these days. Do you have them in their own separate area or have you got them sort of throughout? Everything is willy-nilly. I don't like... I, everything is just a done as a polyculture. Things go whether they where they will suit that spot. And, and, and so the kind of annuals just get like sort of nudged in between everything else. Um, yeah. Uh, partly because I, you know, I, my belief in how we should really take care of the soil is is a huge thing, and and wherever a perennial sits, the soil is protected by the fact that you're not doing too much movement around them. So it's sort of it's good to put them all over the place, if that makes sense. Totally, I see the next book being something on a perennial perennial veg. <laughs> Uh, yeah, well, you know, I'm I'm like kind of buses. Like I I have this really bad habit of kind of. So I, once this book is out in March, I have another book coming out in April, which is exactly about that. So. <laughs> oh, brilliant! Does that does that have a title? What what is what is that called? It's called Eat What You Grow. Okay. Oh, <laughs> which is a little bit like you know, pulls no punches, but um uh. Uh, yeah. that's what you want <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly um but it's a nice one yeah it's all about polyculture and 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 you know it does have chapter on annuals but it really looks a lot at the kind of the perennials which, which will make the backbone of the the garden um and it was kind of set up in this idea that it would be slightly i guess borrowed a little bit from cookbooks in um, what I wanted to do was create a book which had kind of distinct chapters, for want of a better way of putting it, um, where you could say, right, this is the, these are the perennial, these are the trees and shrubs. This is a chapter all about all the trees and the shrubs that you might need. So pick two things from this chapter, pick four things from the next chapter, which is going to be the, you know, perennial vegetables, pick eight things from the biennial chapter, and then pick you know, 15 things from the annual chapter, and there you go, you've got a garden. You can pick anything, it will work. So it was a sort of, um, it was to make it really simple for people. That's brilliant. That I love that concept. I like the fact that it's easy and it's straightforward. That's brilliant. Excellent. <laughs> so hopefully it works. I think it will. Well, you, you've sold it to me, so. <laughs> um, so Grow, Forage and Make, that is out. What date in March is that out? 18th of March. Okay. 
Um, it's published by Bloomsbury um, and it's in conjunction with Kew Gardens, which of course is very dear to my heart because um, I train there. So um, it will definitely be at Kew, but it should also be in bookshops. Um, and it's you, if you want to buy it online, you can buy it from bookshop.org. Wonderful. That's brilliant. And your book after that? Uh, I don't know quite the date. I think it's the end of April. Okay. Um, and that is with Octopus Publishing. Brilliant, brilliant. Well, listen, Alice, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. And I wish you lots of luck with both books. Um, I'm sure they will be a huge success. And I, I really, really hope that Grow, Forage and Make will get into the hands of those that haven't really had a chance or have ever sort of experimented in the garden, because I think it's a really, really important life skill to sort of harness early on in life as well. So it would make for a very good child's gift. <laughs> Oh, well, thank you. And thank you so much for having me on this podcast. It's a real joy to be here. Um, and, you know, I hope that the season is kind and I put a curse on all your slugs. Thank you. I love that. You can come anytime to visit. Here, <laughs> Alice. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Alice's book is jam-packed with ideas to get us out and about and exploring and now is the best time of year to head down to the woods in search of wild garlic, also known as bear's garlic. Now this is a sure sign that spring has arrived and it's one of my favourite ingredients to forage with the boys because let's face it, who doesn't love an edible treasure hunt? And it is super easy to identify and perfect if you're new to foraging. You'll find large swathes of this beautiful green leaf in dark, damp and woodland areas and along riverbanks. Now, it's in season between now and June. And if in doubt, give it a good smell and it will smell just like garlic. Now, my main rule of thumb when it comes to foraging is pick only what you need. Don't pull out the whole plant, including the bulb, because this is the life force for next year's crop. Now also the little white flowers which appear towards the end of the season round about June time are also edible but be mindful as the bees also like them so don't pick too many. But what do you do with this delicious and nutritious green stuff I hear you ask? Well it is great in pesto Blitz with lemon juice, cashew nuts and olive oil and add in some kale. And by the time you've boiled the pasta, you'll have made your own homemade pesto. It's also fab in tomato sauces and bolognese and it's great in an omelette or a cheesy scone for an afternoon treat. But I really love it in soup. It's really fresh and simple. And um, this bright green soup, which we make quite often during this time, my children refer to it as dinosaur soup. So you will need one large onion diced and cook this down in butter until nice and golden brown, along with a couple of spring onions and also one large leek chop. Now, never rush an onion. You need to be able to cook this down for a good 10 plus minutes. Just be careful for it not to stick and burn to the bottom of the pan. Then you need to add in half a bag of frozen peas, an essential frozen food, and also add in a couple of big handfuls of wild garlic and make sure you rinse it before 
add in one and a half litres of vegetable stock and bring to the boil and then just simmer it gently for three to five minutes. It doesn't take too long and then blitz it until it's really lovely and smooth. And then you will have a very tasty and a very quick and also cheap soup for lunch or supper. It's really, really yummy and I really hope you'll give it a bash. Thank you once again for tuning in and listening to Grow, Cook, Inspire. A big thank you to Alice for joining me for this week's interview. Until next time, keep growing and cooking. And remember, please do subscribe, share and review on whichever platform you listen to your podcast. It really does make a huge difference. See you soon.